only about 10% of the population really wants freedom. Um, the majority of the population, in his assessment, as a professional, I mean, this is what he does, uh, study crowds and crowd behavior, the majority of the population wants to be told what to do. And one of the core tenets in authoritarianism that's been documented, you know, for decades now, Hannah Arendt and Gustave Le Bon, etc., um, is that um, if if one is going to choose, if 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 there is a desire to implement a totalitarian structure, um, the best leadership strategy is to be very domineering. People seem to want to have an authoritarian leader. That's why authoritarianism and totalitarianism always come together like this. Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. I am of course sitting with Dr. Robert Malone, who you all know, he's a repeat guest on Dark Horse. And those of you who have been following know that the episode that Robert and I did with Steve Kirsch was removed from YouTube. Our channel was struck and demonetized. It remains demonetized. And so this is uh, round two. Welcome back, Robert. Thanks, Brad. It's good to see you again. It's great to see you. We've had chances to touch base, but not a chance to record anything together since then. So I really look forward to our chat. Yeah, me too. And I, I will say I have thought many, many times that we should do a podcast again. And the obstacle has been, I felt it was important to do it in person. And it has been, you've been all over the world. And uh, that um, has made it hard to arrange a meeting. But we are here together at a conference, which is more or less a conference of uh, COVID dissidents, I would say, yeah. from various various parts of that movement. And it's fascinating. It's the first time that I have been in a place where s there was such a concentration of people who were awake about the questions surrounding COVID. Yeah, you have to be pretty careful about the use of the language around around that that concept of uh, awokenness, uh, given how, you know, this is another case where language has been captured uh, for political movements. And uh, so I, but I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, Awake, wakes feels like the right term. It's just now kind of politically contaminated. Um, but uh, people who um, are not caught in the mass formation uh, process, hypnosis process, let's say. Uh, yes, um, and I agree with you. I, I even feel like the term woke uh, had an honorable meaning that I would have, um, I would have aspired to you know, several years ago and that the word has been uh, turned on its head effectively. Well, you're kind of the poster child for that trajectory. Yeah, interestingly, tomorrow <laughs> is the uh, five-year anniversary of um, the day that I was catapulted into the spotlight uh, at the wrong end of an angry mob who demanded my resignation. Yeah, um, I, I got to say my heart goes out to you for what you've experienced. I'm so glad that I had stepped out of academe uh, before this trend happened. Um, I can't imagine for those who um, are not able to reconcile themselves with this 
uh, current environment, what it, what it must, how painful it must be to be an academic and, and not buy into this dominant narrative and culture. Yeah, I, I will say um, my, my patience with people remaining in the academy is running thin because my sense is this, this movement is so aggressive and so clearly wrong that if you're still hanging in there, you're probably not saying enough. And, you know, there are exceptions. There are some, there are some academics that I know are fighting from within, but it's not many of them. Yeah, Jay Bhattacharya is an example of someone who is choosing to walk that fine line. I, I think this is something that um, a number of folks have, to, have had problems coming to terms with. There's the argument, as you know, because you were leading this panel uh, yesterday, there's the argument to uh, basically self-center, self-censor and select uh, carefully chosen language. Or in the case of J.P. Sears, he just mumbles whenever he, <laughs> instead of saying the word vaccine. And we all know what he's saying, but it escapes the filters. That's why he's able to stay on. Um, uh, but yeah, so, so I think that there, people face that choice of whether to self-censor and walk a very fine line, even Neil Oliver was talking about it, um, versus uh, those like myself that have come to the decision and, and the belief that um, I will be attacked, censored, defamed, etc., no matter whether I choose, elect to try to walk the fine line or not. And uh, it was kind of that realization that led to me, uh, my personal choice, that led to me um, pushing the window on Twitter, which, of course, led to me being deplatformed because I had posted the Canadian COVID Care Alliance video about the Pfizer data manipulations in their clinical trials every bit of which is true and factual. It was documented right in the video, in fact. Yeah, um, uh, but, uh, uh, but it, meets the, it met the current definition of mis- and disinformation and a failure to uh, um, comport with community standards as defined by Twitter, which is essentially that any uh, messaging which might be interpreted as causing vaccine hesitancy whether grounded in truth or not, is disallowed. Yeah, and we, in fact, uh, we learned the playbook after you were ejected from Twitter that, in fact, uh, this was a head-scratcher back when all we had was mis- and disinformation. It is the invention of the term malinformation that tells us where we really are. And I should point out, I said this on the panel yesterday, that the Department of Homeland Security alerts us to three types of terrorism. Misinformation are honest errors. Disinformation are intentional errors. And malinformation are truths that cause you to distrust government, which means to the extent that your government is not trustworthy and you discuss it, you are guilty of terrorism, which of course, as you know, puts you into a very special category, a category with no rights. And the fact uh, is, by virtue of this being housed in the Department of Homeland Security, it is effectively at the discretion of the executive to decide if you are or are not in the category. You will not know that you have been placed in the category. And once placed in the category, you have no rights. 
Every time I go through airport security, um, which is fairly frequent these days, I have a moment of, is this going to be the moment where they're going to pull me out of line? Virtually all the docks that had touch points on January 6th in any way um, have had that experience of being pulled out of line. Um, uh, I'm aware of a female physician that I'm not going to share uh, who's been strip searched uh, um, by Homeland Security when trying to get by TSA when trying to pass through. Um, I, uh, it's profound. The changes that have occurred that um, have been implemented incrementally and which we as a culture have accommodated ourselves to. I gave a rally in uh, Oahu uh, back last fall where I made the point, uh, and I'm, I suspect you'll, it'll resonate with you, that it wasn't so long ago that we all felt sorry for the um, Chinese people because they had to live under a censored internet in which the government controls what they were able to say and when they were able to say it and in which the government tracked them and would implement all kinds of activities to control their behavior and their speech. And uh, we, we felt at the time, and I remember thinking, um, those poor people, they have to carry internal passports. Uh, you remember that? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we were all uh, so shocked that uh, the CCP was implementing an internal passport system. And we all told ourselves that it's never happened in the United States because we have a Bill of Rights. Um, and here we are. Uh, I think it, it, it's helpful to, to walk that back in your memory, to be able to, to kind of cognitively process how much change we've experienced and come to accept. No, I, I agree. And if I, I, I consciously go through the exercise of trying to preserve a memory of what it was like so that I know how, how big the Delta is. I, I will say, I think the concept that we're looking for was absolutely nailed by William Binney, who was an NSA officer, I guess, uh, who turned whistleblower. And what he said, and this was... Uh, years back now, as he said, pre-Snowden, um, this was right in the Snowden era. Okay. He said, we are this close to a turnkey totalitarian state. And the idea that the totalitarian state might be erected around you, but the key not be turned. And so you wouldn't detect it, right? Because although you and I are certainly going to discuss true things that are sure to cause distrust of the government and therefore somehow meet an insane definition of terrorism right here in this podcast. We could hardly avoid it, right? Yeah, right. We will certainly not know whether we, or we've not. Already, we've already crossed that line. We've crossed that line, right. So <laughs> the point is, I didn't feel anything, did you, right? Did we become terrorists in somebody's eyes? Will somebody look at this video and say, oh, they've, they've crossed that line? Your, uh, our, our mutual colleague and friend, James Heckman, makes the point, um, and this is why he was so strongly counseling that I not speak and that the physicians not be engaged in any of the trucker events. And I, and I did not completely follow his guidance, and I did speak out at Hagerstown, is that all of this information now is archived. 
And his point is not that it's going to be weaponized in the present, but that it's going to be weaponized in the future. Well, so I have a different version of this. Um, I call it retroactive surveillance. Mm -hmm. And the idea is if you just hoover up all of the information, all of the correspondence, people have the sense of, well, there's no way they're reading my email. Who am I? They don't, they're not noticing me. So I have a certain amount of safety, but you don't because what happens is it exists in a bank. And if five years later you become interesting to them, they can go backwards into precisely. your history. That's precisely the point. Um, uh, and I, and I agree. And it, it leads to a, you know, we're all kind of numbed now to what's happening. This Dark Horse discussion is sponsored by Public Goods. Public Goods was one of our very first sponsors, and we are as pleased with them now as we were when we first tried their products. Public Goods can simplify your life as a one-stop shop for everyday essentials. Their ingredients are carefully sourced, high quality, and their products are affordable. Public Goods has coffee and tea. They have grains and oils like olive and avocado. They have Castile soap, trash bags, and essential oils. They have spices and extracts like vanilla and almond, vinegar and pasta, dishware and glassware. Public Goods has everything you need to make a meal, including the materials to serve it on. Public Goods products have a great design, too. They have an aesthetic that is simple, clean, and will not make you want to move to another planet. Public Goods cares about health and sustainability. Their products are free of harmful ingredients, and the materials are ethically sourced. Finally, their subscription service is simple and easy to use. Public Goods members can buy all their premium essentials in one place. It really is an everything store. For Dark Horse listeners, we have the following offer. Receive $15 off your first Public Goods order with no minimum purchase. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Go to publicgoods.com slash darkhorse or use the code darkhorse at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com slash darkhorse to receive $15 off your first order. There's something I wanted to mention, though, about all this, that um, we're in the process of, of building this book uh, for Skyhorse Publishing, um, uh, The Lies My Government Told Me and The Better Way Ahead. Uh, and I'm, I'm desperately seeking the better way ahead. <laughs> I have a little trouble with that one. Yeah. Um, but uh, the lies part is pretty easy. Uh, but uh, the point I wanted to make was we, this is forces Jill and I, my wife, Dr. Jill Glasspool Malone, um, to, because we're working the book together, to do exactly this journey that you're talking about of revisiting these events, this cascade of events. And one of the ones, you know, I, you probably get the question also, you actually related your answer about ivermectin um, with this key uh, uh, op-ed position piece that you read in an obscure travel journal uh, that was, you, and you felt uh, Pulitzer Prize material covering um, Pierre Corey's journey mm -hmm. with ivermectin, which was a kind of a seminal turning point you spoke about intellectually for you. And I get that same question all the time. What caused you, Robert, to start speaking out? And historically, I've often gone back to the Dark Horse, that Dark Horse podcast that we shared as a pivot event. Um, and it was. But before that, uh, we had this experience where I got this notification that I talked about in your podcast uh, from Michael Callahan 
who was in Wuhan in the fourth quarter of 2019, called me in January 4th and said, get your team going. And what happened then, what that triggered, I don't think we talked about it in the prior podcast. What that triggered was me setting up the team that I already had in place that I was helping lead that was doing high-end computational stuff for discovering repurposed drugs for organophosphate, uh, in other words, uh, biowarfare agents, um, chemical agents. and uh, So you were working on things that effectively treat exposure to these biowarfare yeah, agents? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Doing, doing drug discovery using uh, biorobots and computational docking and the latest cool tech. Um, and so I kind of pivoted that team to work on drug repurposing, which is what eventually led to the famotidine thing. Mm-hmm. But what Jill did was, because she's very community oriented, um, she got going and started writing a book for self-publication on Amazon that uh, was titled, as I recall, um, uh, pre- you know, Novel Coronavirus, How to Prepare and Protect for Yourself, or something like that was the title. There was no, uh, the nomenclature that we now have of COVID-19 and, and SARS-CoV-2 didn't exist at the time. Mm-hmm. So we referred to it as the novel coronavirus. And uh, she worked her can off um, uh, just day and night. Um, uh, I remember just sitting there working together side by side on the couch and I helped edit it and I wrote a chapter, but she wrote most of it. It was a, a, a major effort for her. And she got it published in the first week in February and uh, through Amazon. And uh, the sales started climbing and uh, was well-received, all five-star ratings and everything. And her, her strategy had been as an avid user of Kindles, uh, historically, um, that this would allow her to update this thing in, a, in real time. As, as events developed. And so it was like in the third revision in March um, and she uploaded the revision and it got held. And it got held for a couple of days. And she inquired and they said, oh, it's just taking us longer than usual to process. Uh, and then um, she inquired again and they came back and they, they said that uh, um, they wouldn't be able to allow it to continue to be published and they would pull it. Mm. Um, and uh, and she inquired repeatedly because their policy had always been that they would give authors an opportunity to learn from the reviewers or whomever had made the decision about why this should be pulled. You know, you used a four-letter word or um, whatever your sin was. And the notification she got was what, you know, this phrase that's now infamous. At the time, it was the first time we've ever encountered it. You have violated community standards, mm. okay, was the lang- specific language. And uh, and we looked, we just poured over what they listed as their community standards. There was nothing that was remotely applicable to anything that was in the content of the book. And other people have looked at the book since. Um, it's entirely innocuous. It's talking about, um, uh, you know, bathroom practices to avoid fecal oral transmission and using alcohol wipes in airplanes and uh, grow your own garden and, you know, this kind of preparedness stuff. And uh, she advocated mask use. Uh, And this is, I think, might have been the sin of the book because at the time, Tony Fauci was saying no masks. Um, And so she was, uh, you know, brokenhearted. The truth is, I mean, it's kind of depressing 
when you put your heart and soul into something, work for multiple weeks, get it out. You're trying to help your community. You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to help save people. And then it's just deleted um, with no uh, appeal. And uh, so, um, so she dug in. It turns out that there was a meeting uh, called, convened by the World Health Organization in February uh, with virtually all the major big tech players that we're now familiar with, where they, the WHO initially discussed the need to control information about this pandemic. Of course, we now know that this is one of the uh, characteristics that went into the planning for Event 201 was how to control information. So in retrospect, you know, none of us, Event 201, I had never heard of Event 201 at the time. Right. Uh, none of us really had that context. Now it's in, in retrospect that we look back, we see that there was planning for how to implement censorship and, and these uh, deploy these other kinds of strategies. But I think it's important to remember that there's, and in the book we have the documentation about this, that there was a WHO initiative in February of 2020, a time when the Trump administration was still largely in denial that this represented a major bio threat. And then shortly thereafter, there was another meeting convened in the White House with Amazon and others, uh, including Washington Post, and Washington Post covered it, um, uh, in which uh, the strategy for uh, censorship, essentially, I don't know what else to call it, was uh, actively discussed um, together with big tech and big tech was recruited. Now we know uh, that through, you know, thanks to, I think it was the Blazes uh, Freedom of Information Act, we now know about the billion dollars expended by our government to promote whatever messaging um, that they, uh, you know, we have yet to discover what that messaging was uh, in coordination with tech. And I look forward to Jeff Landry's uh, lawsuit um, in which he's uh, suing the government and Facebook for uh, collusion on this censorship and information control. And I think when we get to discovery, we're going to learn all kinds of stuff that we probably didn't want to know, but we kind of need to. I wonder if it will have the, the impact that it should. I find that there's so much shocking information that we're just inured to it. And, and if we realize the implications, we would be... Um, we would be motivated to do something because they are dire. So, as you know, since we spoke, um, I've spent a fair amount of time with this interesting guy um, from uh, named Matthias Desmet, this mm -hmm. interesting yes. academic uh, that I ran into many months ago from a podcast and have developed a fairly close friendship. And we spent time in Spain together and um, we, we cut podcasts fairly frequently. So, uh, Matthias in addition to his uh, insights in his upcoming English version of his book, um, uh, The Psychological Basis of Totalitarianism, uh, also is writing another book, and he, we continue to kind of develop those ideas and talk about it. One of the things that he points out is that only about 10% of the population really wants freedom. Um, the majority of the population in his assessment as a professional, I mean, this is what he does, uh, study crowds and crowd behavior. The majority of the population wants to be told what to do. And one of the core tenets in authoritarianism that's been documented, you know, for decades now, Hannah Arndt and Gustave Le Bon, et cetera, um, is that um, 
if if one is going to choose if 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 there is a desire to implement a totalitarian structure um, the best leadership strategy is to be very domineering people seem to want to have an authoritarian leader that's why authoritarianism and totalitarianism always come together like this one of the things that he he and I are talking about a lot more recently is that totalitarianism, we, we often think, well, it's going to be like Stalin or it's going to be like right. Hitler, right? Each time it manifests in subtly different ways. And uh, one of the ways that I think we're seeing this one develop is a way that was predicted a few years ago, um, inverse totalitarianism. We have effectively this fusion of corporate interests and the bureaucracy, the entrenched bureaucracy, which is what makes it inverted. It's not the elected political leaders or the appointed political leader, whatever the, you know, typically the, the in, yeah. a, in a totalitarian structure, you have a small number of leaders at the summit um, that function as the political elite. But what we have, I think, growing here in the United States, and really, if you think about the World Economic Forum, it's kind of like that too, is you have these bureaucratic functionaries that uh, represent a, a more subtle, quiet, um, uh, established leadership that are acting in uh, unilateral, um, authoritarian, totalitarian fashion, but they, they are much less visible except for folks like you and me that are living in the moment and obsessing over it. Well, I, I am very cautious about imagining that I know more than I do about what is actually driving. I think we can feel the force that is arrayed against us. We can say something about how powerful it is, what kinds of tools it has at its disposal. We can say a little bit about um, the fact that it is not, it is at least not entirely a conspiracy, that there is at least a component of it that is evolved, that is emergent. Um, but I do not know to the extent that it behaves like an inverted totalitarian state. I don't know that it isn't a cryptic traditional one, right, where we can't see the connections. And I'm especially cautious about it because I think its relationship to nation states is increasingly, um, uh, it's an, it's a, constraint that it must deal with. The fact that we still believe that we function in nations is uh, real and it has an impact. But for example, the apparent agreement amongst the Five Eyes countries to, well, my government can't invade my privacy, but there's no, yeah, but the British government can apparently invade my privacy and the American government can ask them to do it. Right. Obviously, that is a violation of the spirit of the Bill of Rights. But the fact that we know that it takes place and that we know that these alliances exist and that we're not allowed to check in on them and that, you know, I'll go back to the issue of in the U.S., it is literally true that the executive branch, because it decides someday that you've crossed the line that it has outlined without any ability to question it, can decide that you can no longer avail yourself of, for example, a court in which you might be able to say, I am not a terrorist and, you know, show me the evidence that I am. That court doesn't exist because you're not even allowed to know that it's been designated. So the point is that structure, to the extent that some structure 
can un-American me. It can take away my American rights, right? And then expose me to who knows what uh, that is decided at a global level, right? And, and we should probably at least touch on the fact that, you know, either this treaty with the WHO, um, which uh, many of us regard as a serious threat to sovereignty, this treaty that is supposed to provide a mechanism for managing a global pandemic. And I think all of us would agree that, you know, we're if we had good governance globally, we would like somebody in a position to do rational things above the level of nations because these pathogens do jump borders. But I don't think anybody who's been paying attention wants any governmental structure that exists on earth today empowered to do these kinds of things because they obviously can't be trusted. I guess I've tripped over that line again. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what we're up against, and um, I, I'm afraid of assuming we know more than we do because it will cause us to make errors in fighting it. Fair enough. Um, I I I'm a little further along in the uh, spectrum. Uh, I'm choosing those words carefully. <laughs> um, uh, um, some might say I'm quite farther along in the spectrum, uh, whatever that spectrum is. Uh, right. So the pandemic treaty. Um, first off, we, we need to own, acknowledge that there is no treaty between the United States government and the World Health Organization. There's an agreement. Um, uh, we've agreed to fund them. We've agreed to engage and participate with them. But we do not have a treaty that has been reviewed by the uh, Senate and yeah. approved. Um, second point, I think what you're talking, because there is a treaty on the table. Yeah. Um, in addition to that treaty, there is the modification of the international health regulations, which is basically a, a modification of the, um, we can call it operating principles of the World Health Organization um, that was uh, submitted, I think it was January 28th, by our Health and Human Services which is the document that currently seems to have most folks wound up and I think is what you're referring to. Yep. So, so these are um, uh, modifications to what are functionally operating procedures uh, that they call the international health regulations that um, uh, we're proposing that create a path that would allow the director general, currently Mr. Tedros, uh, to... Um, unilaterally uh, implement, uh, de declare a public health emergency for any reason. Um, and it's been pointed out, you know, one hot button is it could be for gun violence. A case could be made that we have an epidemic of gun violence in the United States, which is compromising public health. That case can well be made, has been made multiple times. Um, we could say that we have an epidemic of depression. Or anxiety. Those are all true. Mm -hmm. We do have those things, um, uh, and uh, or or it could be because of monkeypox, just pulling a pathogen out of the hat for some reason. Um, uh, in in the determination uh, under these regulations would be made unilaterally by the director general, um, based on. Uh, non-transparent sources, so they could be from anywhere. It could be Bill Gates calls him up and says, "Hey, we need a right. we we need a public health emergency," um, and uh, it would convey powers 
to um, make recommendations which nation states would have to respond to within 48 hours. And if they did not comport with those regulations, it would authorize WHO and through that the United Nations to implement sanctions such as, for instance, we've seen with Russia regarding the Ukrainian situation. So it, it, this pathway does not require uh, Senate uh, concurrence. It's not a treaty based um, and, and it's uh, ostensibly based in international law um, and sets a precedent of a unelected, um, uh, uh, well, he's elected sort of. He was elected without opposition by unanimity for his uh, recent re-election, uh, the director general, right? Um, to uh, implement uh, policies and practices that our government had no control over. Right, but I would just point out, this is the same story that I already told about um, the Department of Homeland Security. The idea, the idea is there are supposed to be checks that prevent you from making a law that says, actually, at my sole discretion, I can declare you a so-and-so, and then having declared you a so-and-so... Oh, you're, you're precisely right. right. I agree. This is the same thing. And so I think the, the problem is it's very hard to, you know... It's very hard to imagine exactly how it would go down that the WHO is going to be dictating that we must impose mandates, right? It's very abstract. But the point is, once you've built that mechanism... That it can be deployed at any point. At any it, point, it, yeah. It, it precisely illuminates and, and illustrates the point you made at the beginning, uh, which is this edifice has been built around us um, uh, and at any point, the key can be turned, which makes it the sort of Damocles. It's always hanging over our head. And all they have to do is choose to cut the cord and it'll cut our neck off, metaphorically. Um, uh, and so that, and I think this is a key idea that you're drilling in on because this drives behavioral changes that in, in use of language and uh, communication um, without ever having to cross the line. Right. It is, it is a, a incredibly effective tool to generate self-censorship in behavior, thought, and speech. I think of it as the opposite of goose-stepping, right? And the idea is, look, if totalitarianism goose-stepped its way in, we'd all know exactly what it was, right? This is the opposite. It's like, it's, it's subtle enough. You've got to have a certain you know, ability to track an argument and follow through. It's, it's boring. It's, it's boring. It's so boring that you're not going to notice it. And if somebody says it's happening, you're going to want them to stop talking about it because it's, it's too abstract. Right? It's insidious. It is. And it is relentless. Yeah, it is That's, relentless. It's, it's the relentless aspect that sometimes I have to um, fight um, the darkness inside myself when I encounter it. Yeah. Um, the the uh, relentless denial of the data, of the facts, of the truth. Um, we're in a world... <coughs> it's, it seems hyperbole. We're in a post-truth world. Mm -hmm. Well, the truth... I mean, there is literally a memo... That says if you say true things that cause people to distrust their government, you're guilty of terrorism. It is, That's where we are. It is so deeply Orwellian. It, it, it's. I think I was thinking this this morning that it's actually 
a step beyond Orwell, right? That's a. It's like they've taken nineteen. So I'm not, this is an original thought to me. It's as if they've taken the writings of Orwell in Animal Farm in nineteen eighty four and Brave New World and all those classic texts that you yeah. and I probably because we're of a certain generation we had to read when we were young humans yeah. uh, and um, in our formative years in those in those key years right before puberty most of us were had had to encounter these this logic and these thoughts and it's as if they've taken those classic works and used them as textbooks as a starting point it 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 really reminds me of uh, Machiavelli's the prince mm-hmm. um, but the prince was actually written as a as a lodestone as a guide for uh, the young noble in um, the uh, balkanized world of uh, Italy um, uh, at, you know, with Renaissance and post-Renaissance period. And it's as if they have taken these warning texts and uh, taken them as a starting point and weaponized them. Uh, I agree. And now I'm going to pivot us a little bit because I think this mirrors something that's going on in a different realm, one that's more home territory for both you and me and probably more fun to talk about, which is, you know, the sort of molecular inner workings of viruses and the way they interface with the the body. But the the connection is this. I learned something from you at this conference. Uh, You caused the dime to drop on something that I hadn't put together, which is I had become aware of course, of the modification of the RNA in the uh, the RNA-based uh, vaccines, um, a substitution of a nucleotide. But when I became aware that it had happened, I assumed that that had been uh, information that was available all along and that I had somehow overlooked it. That's not right, is it? Um, so, uh, so you're speaking of the incorporation of pseudouridine. Yep. And, uh, just for the audience, so we're all kind of on the same page. Yeah. This, to, to kind of comprehend this without going too deep into the weeds, uh, the process that this synthetic RNA is, by which it's manufactured, is that, um, a plasmid DNA, a circular DNA is manufactured in a bacteria where you can make large quantities of it. And it has encoded in it the sequences necessary to tell a particular enzyme, start here and go there and uh, make an RNA based on this DNA template. Okay, and the enzyme that does that is T7RNA polymerase. Um, And when it does that, it has to grab the components, the nucleotides, as you mentioned, out of a solution. The enzyme, as it proceeds along the DNA track to make this uh, be uh, like a string of pearls kind of product that is the RNA that comes off of that polymerase, uh, the polymerase enzyme has to grab these molecules out of solution. And the molecular mix is relatively homogeneous, but somewhat random. Um, and uh, the way it's done is in the tube, metaphorically, of course, this is happening in a larger volume now. In the tube, you add A, U, G, and C, these four fundamental components, as opposed to the digital world that we're familiar with, which only has two, a zero, and a one. In nucleic acids, there's four components, A, U, G, C, or A, T, G, C, and DNA, just to get the fundamentals out. 
And um, in natural RNA, uh, the um, there is a uh, uracil or uridine base that is one of these four. It's the U, A-U-G-C, that goes into the RNA. And it is uh, polymerized in the cell in the same kind of process. Uh, and then in the cell, there's a specific enzyme that will act at specific points in that RNA. And we're still learning that. We're learning about what makes that enzyme decide to change that particular uridine to a pseudouridine. It's a chemical modification catalyzed by an enzyme, and it's very precisely controlled. And very precisely controlled in, in a biological, in a, in a functioning in cell. cell. In a functioning cell. And it's very precisely controlled because the implications of where it does that modification are huge in the biology of that subsequent RNA and what it does, how it gets spliced, which is to say kind of molecularly recombined, um, how long it lasts in the cell, and it also affects um, the, the RNAs apparently influence a lot of pathways involved in your immune response. And so all of these things are regulated and the pseudouridine changes how the RNA folds is a whole bunch of intricate cool stuff if you're an RNA wonk. Um, and the difference is that, number one, we really don't understand how all that works yet. Um, so this is the uh, um, part about uh, um, uh, coming to terms with our own ignorance. Yeah, well, uh, precautionary principle-wise, just so it's a, it's okay. a red flag. And, and so what, what's done in the... Uh, in the uh, synthetic RNA that's produced in a factory uh, that employs this patent of Curico and Weissman, which is held by UPenn and licensed to uh, BioNTech and to Moderna, is that um, they put um, all of the U's or most of the U's are pseudouridines. Um, and they incorporate them randomly throughout the RNA at very high density. Yep. And so what this results in is an RNA that is not natural. It is something different. It's not what would be normally in the cell. And yet physicians were reassured by the pharmaceutical industry that uh, um, the behavior of this artificial RNA in terms of how long it sticks in the cell and its underlying biology was the same as a natural RNA. And this was actively told when physicians asked, uh, you know, typically they would ask the pharmaceutical rep or whatever for information. Well, how long does this drug stick around? Which is a normal thing to ask. Okay, we call that pharmacokinetics is the fancy yeah. word for it. Um, you know, how long does the drug last in your body before it gets decomposed? One of the fundamental characteristics that is always an analyzed with any new pharmaceutical. Um, those studies actually weren't done. Yep. Uh, nor were the, where does the drug go in your body? The fancy word for that is pharmacodistribution. And how long is it active? That's pharmacokinetics. None of that stuff was done. Um, it was done to a limited extent, but not rigorously. And not looking at this full cascade that the RNA is actually not really the drug. It's sort of the drug. 
Um, but the active principle is the thing that the RNA makes, the protein, which makes it complex and it really doesn't fit regular vaccine uh, regulatory paradigms. Right. So, so then um, fast forward, uh, Katie well, Carrico, um knew because I'd spoken to her. She called me about a decade after I'd done the, for, the initial work and asked for my help. Um, and I said, because she wanted to work on RNA and RNA delivery. And I said, the big problem with the system is that it is incredibly inflammatory. It essentially, giving it common language, it causes pus formation when you inject it into a variety of tissues. And uh, pain and swelling and redness, classic signs of inflammation. And, uh, and so, so I said, you know, I told her people that she could talk to. And, and she and Drew Weissman, who's a, a Fauci postdoc um, uh, at Penn, um, had the brainstorm that they would take this new biologic finding, pseudouridine, which was known at the time to have some effect on inflammation associated with RNA. And they said, we'll just put a whole lot of pseudouridine in the RNA. And lo and behold, it produced a product that would produce protein for longer and at higher levels um, when it was administered into an animal. And so this was the basis for that patent. Um, Moderna actually didn't want to license it. Uh, Katie is a vice president at BioNTech, so it was always part of the BioNTech uh, um, portfolio. And the, there's another third player in the RNA vaccine space called CureVac, which is also in Germany, and they've never used pseudouridine. And actually, the, the um, immune responses of their RNA formulations, which are basically the same except they don't have the pseudouridine, in humans are very similar. Um, but this was the position that was taken by these uh, two scientists who had close ties to NIH. And that is why that pseudouridine is incorporated that way in all of the artificial RNAs that any of us that have taken the RNA vaccines have received. And um, then fast forward to the present and we have these odd observations about immunosuppression. And then we had this paper come out in Cell in January uh, from this team from Stanford that did the fine needle aspirations. Uh, so they actually pulled cells out of people's bodies. It wasn't in a test tube or in a Petri dish. And they said, how long does this RNA stick around? And it turns out that it doesn't stick around for half an hour, an hour or two hours, which is what the pharma had been telling the physicians. But in fact, it sticks around for at least 60 days. They didn't test beyond that. Right. And furthermore, it produces more protein in your blood, more spike protein of the Remember, the, the, this is one of the things I got fact-checked on after our infamous interview, yep. that spike is absolutely not a toxin. The spike that's in the vaccine is not a toxin. That's the, what they claimed. The spike has two main components, S2 that kind of stays in the cell and gets cut from the other part that's extracellular called S1 that circulates and binds to ACE2 and does all this wonderful stuff. In the vaccine and in the virus... The S1 is identical. In the vaccine and the virus, the S2 is almost identical, except for it has two little point mutations, two prolines, which are there that makes the uh, product, when it's expressed, more immunogenic from an antibody standpoint. And I think you, you taught me this. They locked it open. They basically took the scissors and they put a, a weld so that the scissors are locked open. And we look at it. Yeah. And the reason that they did that 
was because the outside of the protein naturally accumulates sugars, which is probably an evolved defense of the virus so that it doesn't get spotted. (laughs) And so by locking it open, they expose a part of the protein that the immune system can then see and register. So at the level of can you make a vaccine that stimulates the immune system, this makes sense. But they took a toxic protein and they locked it open and left it otherwise so that, similar. I, when I said that to you, I got that partially wrong. Okay. And, and I got pushback from uh, molecular virologists on that. And I had to dive deeper into it and correct that. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. Great. Um, I got it wrong. Uh, um, it was my best understanding at the time uh, that those two proline mutations do alter the immunogenicity, but they don't really lock the Uh, receptor binding domain pockets open like i was saying Mm. and now i know that those receptor binding domains it's this this protein that we talk about spike so casually is a fascinating molecule as all of these viral receptors that have dual functions they bind and then they also trigger the fusion event that allows the nucleic acid to get into the cell um in the case of of the the um, spike protein i like to use the metaphor it's like a treble fish hook Right. Mm-hmm. Understand what a treble hook looks like. Sure. And if you think about the barbs on the treble hook, those are akin to the receptor binding domain. And if you think about the part where you tie the knot um, onto the fishing line, that's really S2. That little loop down yeah. there is kind of like S2. So if you've got that metaphor in your mind, then you can imagine each of those barbs are completely flexible. They can rotate. Okay. And that's what the receptor binding domain does. And it, that, those two point mutations alter the conformation of that three treble, three component trimer that is spike Mm -hmm. and alter the, um, conformational change capability to undergo the conformational change associated with the um, fusion versus pre-fusion conformation. Remember I said it has this dual function, but so that part is true. Um, It does make it more immunogenic. It does alter the, the, it locks it into the pre-fusion conformation. um, So it can't undergo that change, but it, I was wrong. It does not affect the receptor binding domains, which are floating out there kind of free. And it makes sense from a, I mean, I know you love biology and evolution and biochemistry. And so you can imagine these things have, you know, huge conformational freedom to find their mm-hmm. uh, cognate receptor. So that's, um, thank you for mentioning that, but, but it's, this is really in the weeds uh, for well, most. Let, let's go back to the, the uh, pseudouridine in the, in the mRNA, yeah. because I really wanted to get at something actually kind of simple. I appreciate your explanation um, of how it gets there. But I feel I was lied to in the same way that you're describing that doctors who were interested uh, in the contents of the vaccine and their durability in the cell were lied to. Because I was saying, I was repeating, oh, it's an mRNA. It's been encased in these lipid nanoparticles. The lipid nanoparticles have an affinity for cells because the cells have a lipid on their surface. That gives me some sort of a ballpark as a biologist to say, well, how novel is this, right? The lipid nanoparticles, highly novel. I can see that. The mRNA, it's highly novel in the sequence, but it's not highly novel to have an mRNA floating structure. in the yeah. cytoplasm. And so I have some sort of intuitive sense about what that would mean about how durable the thing would be. Because for one thing, 
the body doesn't like free mRNAs. Right? It doesn't like foreign nucleic acids. Right. Absolutely hates foreign nucleic acids. It's got all kinds of barriers for good reason. Right. So you would imagine. <laughs> so, And in fact, the story when the vaccines first came out. Um, was that one of the challenges was getting enough of the stuff intact into the cells to get it to work, right? So, okay, this all, this sets up in the mind a sense where the, the novel aspects that are introduced into the body are not long lived. So, yes, there's a lot of danger in this vaccine, but at least if you survive the period where it interacts with your cells, which ostensibly is just a few hours. Right. So at the point that I found out, oh, wait a minute. This isn't mRNA in the standard sense. My standard model for mRNA doesn't work. It doesn't tell me how long. It's as if you dropped a fiberglass log in the forest. And it's like, well, logs in the forest, they get eaten by termites and fungi and things like that. Interesting metaphor. I know how long that takes, roughly. Uh Depends on the forest. But whatever, I've got some model. Well, that fiberglass log might last an awfully long time in that forest because it's not really a log at all. And... So anyway, I, I well, let's run with your metaphor for just a minute. All right. Okay, I love the metaphor. Okay, so because it's it has it has a length, two dimensional aspect, um, so that's that's good, um, and it's very long lived, and it's composed of fibers. I mean, we don't have to go too down in the metaphor. Yeah. Um, so the log in the forest, as the metaphor for the RNA, one of the things that has Ryan Cole and I really worried, and we've discussed how to do the experiment, but we're all too busy and it takes money. Um, okay. Now imagine that log in the forest. Okay. Now we're going to place that log into the cell, metaphorically speaking. Okay. And that log has a function. Um, it processes something that causes something to be made that happens to be toxic. Okay. And yet the cell now or the forest in the metaphor can never degrade it. Mm -hmm. Okay. But that foreign thing that it makes can cause that cell to get attacked. Will cause it to get attacked. If, if you're successful in generating an immune response and a T cell response in particular, the cells that have that RNA, they're making that spike protein will get attacked. So hold on. I want to pause you because I advanced a hypothesis on Dark Horse, which has now just come right back up. So I want to catch people up and then I want you to pick up your explanation. So what I argued, and I, I believe I came up with this independently, but I believe Peter McCullough has mentioned something similar as has Jonathan Cooey. The... Idea is the body has a way to recognize cells that have been virally infected. Cells that have been virally infected have a quirk, which is their surface has a mixture of self proteins, which the body recognizes and non self proteins, which it recognizes by virtue of the fact that it doesn't know what they are. When a cell has those two things on its surface, the only thing it can be from a biological perspective is a virally infected cell and a virally infected cell. I guess it could be, well, yeah, because the, the then, same, then the, the non-self public. is self, but it's sufficiently it's a, it's a mutated self. Right. Okay. So okay. fair enough. The point is, in either of those cases, there is one and only one right thing to do, and that is to destroy the cell, right? And the problem is- It's a is, simple switch. It's a simple <laughs> switch. If that cell is in your heart, well, you, now you've got two problems because you've got your immune True. system attacking the cells True. in the heart. 
and your heart doesn't repair its scars. Bingo. Right. And so the point is, you could get a lot of scar tissue in your heart. You might get away with it. It might diminish the longevity of your heart. It might reduce its capacity to pump blood, or you might have just a little damage, and you would be subthreshold. But all true. Anyway, so the point is, yeah, we could go down that rabbit hole if you want. We with this, uh, with the mRNA-based vaccines, at least we set people who receive those injections up for their immune system to attack their own cells on the basis that they had been virally infected. And then this issue of the change, the altered mRNA, makes it vastly worse because the point is it's not that the cell stops producing the foreign protein and maybe the immune system hasn't gotten around to killing it and that cell can go back to being a normal cell. The point is now that mRNA might be very long-lived and that cell is going to continue to produce foreign protein until some T cell, cytotoxic T cell, comes and, and kills it out or a natural killer cell. Or antibody-dependent cytotoxicity, cellular cytotoxicity. So all, all true. Yeah. Concur. Okay. And more so. So what that says is like what you want at the point that they say, all right, we've got a pandemic We've got some vaccines. Don't worry. They're good vaccines. We've tested them. And you're trying to check whether or not what they're saying makes sense. The question is, how novel is that thing you want to inject into me? Right? Lipid nanoparticles. Mm, red flag. Okay. Should, be, should have been well characterized pharmaceutically. Right. But there ain't no natural version of that, right? That is a Correct. non-targeted Correct. mechanism for invading cells. It's if, you know, it, it's dependent in on normal the- vaccinology, the characterization of the uh, um, pharmacologic toxicology associated with that component. If, for instance, if we were to define it as an adjuvant. Yeah. Right. Would typically require years. Mm-hmm. All right. So that was one red flag. That one set me off, right? I could see that that was a hazard. Didn't mean it wasn't brilliant. I mean, I, I think it may in fact Doesn't be. Doesn't matter. Well, it is. It is what it is. It is what it is. But it's at least from the point of view of the more novel your uh, your remedy is, the more likely it has consequences you don't know about that you're not going to like, right? Now, so add on top of that. So I missed that the payload also right. had a similar level of yes. novelty here, yes. which was that the mRNA wasn't really mRNA. It was very special mRNA that might... I, I suggest it should not be called mRNA. It is a long-lived polynucleotide, single-stranded polynucleotide, which can be translated, but it is really not mRNA. I think it deserves its own language. Yeah, it, it certainly, it, it, it at least deserves another letter, Right. It deserves another letter, something that will call your attention to the fact that there's a novelty. mRNA, synthetic mRNA or something. Right, something like that. And anyway, so at the point that you mentioned at the conference um, what this was, and it, the dime dropped that it wasn't that I had missed this at the beginning. It's that they, did, they forgot to mention it, right? And it's like a huge thing to forget to mention. I felt again burned by this whole story because with that piece of information... I could have been that much clearer about the novelty and the danger, and you know, we we could have had a better discussion. But um, so let me let me. There's two corollaries. Yep. Um, uh, with this long-lived RNA or synthetic polynucleotide, single-stranded polynucleotide, um, the the. Uh, the pharmacokinetics, the degradation of it, um, the clearance of it in your body is super important 
if one is interpreting the range of adverse events that are temporally, in other words, with time, mm. associated with the administration of the drug. Okay, so we have been told, and it has been uh, the dogma, that, for instance, as you analyze bears or fill-in-the-blank database, that we should really not focus on any adverse events, particularly things that look like acute adverse events as opposed to the delayed autoimmune things, um, but acute adverse events like um, myocardial damage um, that occur after about two weeks. Those are considered probably just background noise from whatever the physiology of the person was because it was assumed that the RNA only lasted a very brief period of time. Now we functionally have to go back, if, if we were being honest, if we were acting with integrity, scientific integrity, we would go back and say, oh, darn, we missed that. We need to go back and analyze the full profile of data and adverse events and recalculate the adverse event rate because we now know that this thing sticks around in your body for at least two months. So okay, there's that. This is part of the gaslighting, right? So, you, okay, the people who are still honest enough to try to interpret this and have the technical chops to understand what they're looking at, this was some kind of red herring. Because if you were trying to build a model, you've got all of these people who believe that they have had uh, injury yeah. from the vaccine. What is the injury? How plausible is it that it came from the vaccine? Well, if you don't know that the mRNA isn't mRNA and that it might be sticking around a very long time, right? Then the point is those the likelihood that those those delayed reactions are the result of the vaccine skyrockets. Right. So if you didn't know that, then the point is you think, well, I don't it, know. it means that all of our prior interpretation about correlation between adverse events and and uh, the inoculation, I'm going to call it. I'm really trying to move away from calling these vaccines. Yep. They really no longer meet the criteria of vaccines. They're more like some sort of immunotherapeutic inoculation. We can, again, yep. language matters. It does. Okay. Um, uh, and, and the term vaccine is clearly overly broad. Um, now I'm one, uh, so we, we, we must, if we are acting with integrity, we must go back and reevaluate our prior assumptions and reevaluate the safety database in light of this cell paper, which by the way, they totally buried the lead. If you look at the title of that cell paper, you would never guess that it had this crucial data about the pharmacokinetics of the RNA or the relative levels of expression of the spike protein compared to uh, um, in the naturally infected in your circulating blood. Um, you wouldn't know it if you read the title. Surprise. Right. In fact, um, I, I didn't know this until I heard you mention it out loud and put the stuff together and it was so so now there's clear. another i said there's two branches to this yeah um you've 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 kind of mined the um uh implications in cellular immunology which we all knew um historically uh the other one is that's most worrisome and and uh this has to do with pattern recognition putting together pieces of information that are fragmented in the landscape there's this observation um, that um, uh, has been made that there are uh, migratory white blood cells in your body that will call for, for simplicity, we'll call them macrophage. Okay. Um, 
that move around in your body and control, you know, this dendritic cells, a whole bunch of different flavors of these things, as yep. you know, um, but we'll just call them macrophages and, uh, or monocytes. And there is a subpopulation of these that you can pull out of people's bodies and you can analyze them in flow cytometry, cool tech, um, that continue to uh, um, carry spike protein for a very long period of time, months. And they have markers on their surface by flow cytometry that are consistent with an unusual activated hyperinflammatory state. Okay, so you have migratory white blood cells post-vaccination in your body, which continue to maintain spike protein. So they have it on their surface. Is that because and they're in, their, in, in their cytoplasm? In their most, cytoplasm. Most are, they, are, they, are they displaying and actually, it? Spike, no, well, they may or may, I don't think they display them. I think what we're talking about is cytoplasmic and intranuclear spike, it turns out, when it's cytoplasmic, can be translocated across the nuclear membrane yep. and has other effects on key um, metabolic pathways and uh, uh, gene regulatory pathways in the nucleus of these monocytes that have been so um, altered some way. And the problem is how, how to comprehend that because um, monocytes typically aren't readily transfected in these systems. And they are certainly not infected. That's been one of the paradoxes in thinking about antibody-dependent cellular side. I'm sorry, about antibody-dependent enhancement. Um, when we talk about that yeah. process like dengue, dengue blows open monocytes that uh, because of antibody coding that allows them to uh, use the FC receptor and get infected. That does not happen with this virus. Why are we getting spike protein in a long-lived fashion in these monocytes? It could be taking it up from the environment, but then we would see the same phenotype with the natural infection. Maybe we would see it more with the vaccine because you got more spike, but it's a conundrum. Here's the theoretical possibility that goes back to your metaphor of the fiberglass log. Okay. Okay. If these RNAs are present, in the cytoplasm of these cells that will be targeted. Yeah. Well, the way that they usually get targeted is they, they're triggered to undergo a self-destructive sequence. You know, it's as if uh, Captain Kirk says, hit the auto-destruct button. Well, that auto-destruct button for the Enterprise triggers something called apoptosis, apoptosis as you know. Apoptosis, yeah. Um, and uh, so apoptosis happens and in the nucleus fragments yep. and uh, the cell fragments into vesicles largely. Yep. These little packages that have GORP from inside the cell inside of them. Okay, they're kind of like liposomes. Yep. It's kind of like the cell blows up and releases a whole bunch of different liposomes that have inside of it whatever was in the cell before. Yep. Okay, and what happens to those liposomes? Other cell types, mononuclear cells, yep. phagocytes, macrophage, come in and they clean up all that debris, all that blown up uh, enterprise. Yep. Um, and uh, if those fiberglass logs, so this is totally hypothetical. Yeah. If those fiberglass logs have no ready enzymatic way to be turned into uh, forest litter, yep. um, they will still be there sitting in those vesicles. Absolutely. And if those vesicles are taken up by monocytes and processed, then there's a good chance that those fiberglass logs are going to be just because we know this with fiberglass. It's a great metaphor. Um, you know, it's like talking about uh, 
um, any of these uh, fibrous molecules, uh, they, they will break free and potentially could then have a secondary transfection, a secondary yeah, delivery of that it. RNA into whole new cell types that are phagocytic cell types. Phagocytic cell types. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but to the extent that we understand anything about the vaccine injured, monocytes are very frequently implicated right? They have diseases that affect the functioning of this very important cell type involved in effectively garbage collection throughout the body all the time. Yeah. So the vaccine injured, if we're going to open that can of worms just a little bit, one of the things that has been fascinating, uh, you recall back in the day, we had this conversation and we were both being so careful because we didn't get want to have what happened to us that has subsequently happened. So uh, there's a great example of we self-censored um, and it didn't do us any good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we might as well, might just, as well just let it hang out. Talk. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so we talked about these uh, buddies that I had back in the day until I had that podcast uh, that I used to talk to all the time at the FDA on a regular basis, uh, weekly. Um, and we would talk about the adverse events, as you'll recall. We talked about this and, and my communication back to the FDA through them. And uh, one of in, in that this group working together with this interesting biostatistician called Bill Dumache, who worked for this company called Oracle that knows something about database analysis. Uh, and he being the lead biostatistician particularly knows something about biologic databases analysis um, was the guy who together with this small group uh, did the initial analysis of available data as a pilot project. It wasn't really sanctioned by the FDA, which detected this uh, characteristic adverse event at a time when no one, when all the party line was, there was no major adverse events called myocarditis and pericarditis. So it was Bill Dumache working with those same characters that d first discovered this signal. Then he told it to the CDC wouldn't listen to him. And so they told it to the Israelis and the Israelis checked their database. At the time, CDC was totally dependent on the CD on the Israeli database because they knew their VAR system was a hot mess. And then Israelis confirmed it and the CDC confirmed it and then it became the party line. That was the cascade. At the same time, these same people also knew that there was a major signal for um, uh, shingles and other viral reactivation. So we have these DNA viruses, many of us, and in the case of shingles, anybody that's had chicken pox. Yep. Uh, so that's those of us of a certain age, um, pretty much all had it yep. uh, until the vaccine got rolled out. Uh, and um, we have latent uh, virus, DNA virus, residing in our neurons, in our basal ganglia, along our spinal cord, etc., that under certain types of stimuli uh, will um, crawl down those neurons down to uh, this cutaneous region, the skin region that those neurons serve. And those viruses will emerge at the end of those neuron tips and start replicating in our skin. And this causes a little pox, mm -hmm. a little vesicle. We call it shingles. We originally called it chicken pox when we had it. Yep. And so it has this very unique distribution depending on what a nerve, where a nerve goes. And this reactivation of chicken pox is something that's really clear and apparent. And it was known back then when we had our conversation that one of the other major side effects was viral reactivation. That and, and shingles and 
Epstein-Barr virus. Epstein-Barr, yeah. Um, and that has never been acknowledged by the public health service worldwide. But we all know it is a major side effect, just like they never acknowledge. You recall back in the day, we talked about the dysmenorrhea, the alteration of menstrual cycle. Yeah. We talked about the ovarian targeting with the lipids. And that was denied. And shockingly, I still can't believe it. The, the public health service went back to that mid 20th century language that women were being hysterical. Right? You remember that? They they I don't literally well, they I know literally that, did it. I, I know that from history. I don't they know that they literally did it. They, they used they used the language of hysterical women to explain the frequent reporting of of dysmenorrhea and menometrorrhagia associated with the vaccine. Um, but they have never come to terms with the viral reactivation, latent viral reactivation, DNA virus reactivation. And now, so now when we talk about, as you were, I'm sorry for this digression, when we were talking about uh, the post-vaccination syndrome, what I hear from the frontline docs is that um, the bulk of those patients that they're having present to them. Yeah. um, And remember, I have a biased sampling. I hang out with the doctors that are willing to treat patients. Right. <laughs> um, with these, uh, you know, horse medicines and such like. OK, so patients come to them, patients that have uh, damages that they have not been able to get addressed by the standard medical system, by the docs that are within the system and within the, let's say, hypnosis to be gentle. Um, uh, and so uh so they have a, a selection bias and the people come to them, but the vast majority of those that are coming to them with complaints of post-vaccination syndrome are experiencing Epstein-Barr virus reactivation. It's a subset that have the shingles. Now, COVID will also reactivate Epstein-Barr. Absolutely. And will, is also associated with shingles. Yeah. And that's the key part of this. Uh, it's so important about this cell paper documenting that the level of spike protein produced systemically in your blood plasma after receiving the inoculation is significantly higher. And I don't mean just statistically, I mean like, wow. Um, Then one observes in patients after natural infection, which of course is coming through their mucosa typically, their oropharynx or their nasopharynx, and by the way, also their eyes. That's why masks don't work. Mm. Um, The whole mask logic is based on a fallacy that there are only two portals (laughs) of infection. Hmm. Minor problem. (laughs) Quite the oversight, (laughs) but okay. (laughs) Um, You know, you can't make it up. No. Um, So, yeah, you do see it, and you seem to see it less frequently uh, than with the vaccinations. And and if you buy into the thesis that we were resoundingly criticized for, uh, that spike is a toxin, um, uh, you know, by all the fact checkers that had not graduated. All the uh, PhDs at the AP. (laughs) (laughs) Or even worse, and logically AI. Um, Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah, that worked for Thomson Reuters. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so um, that thesis that, well, these things happen with the virus. Um, so you can't discriminate between whether they happen um, 
post-vaccination consequent to somebody having had an cold virus infection or due to the vaccine. Um, yet we have these strong correlations between um, the vaccine recipients who have no history or evidence of prior infection. And they often seem to see these adverse events at higher frequency and often um, of longer duration or um, uh, with, with a more florid uh, presentation. Um, so that, that, that gets to this problem of how do we sort the needle, you know, the um, chicken from the egg kind of. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm compelled, and so are many other physicians, that uh, are, are op- have their eyes open, let's say. Right. Um, that uh, we do have these, uh, this spectrum of post-vaccination syndrome. It, there's, a, there's a paper out that looks at the spectrum of syndromes of uh, the post-viral syndrome and the post-vaccination syndromes and compares those symptoms. And statistically, you cannot differentiate. If you look at population with, with the post-viral syndrome, the population with the post-vaccination syndrome and their list of symptoms, you cannot distinguish them. Okay, And that gets to my point what is the commonality? You know, we're we're people that live in a yeah. in a logical world. What is the common thing? Uh, you know, between A and B. This spike. goes back to Sesame Street, yeah. right? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, spike. And um, so we to this just to put a nail in this one. Yeah. Um, that gets back to my point about the nature of spike. The two-point mutations were not put in there to mitigate safety concerns. Full stop. Yeah. I tracked that documentation down because I was getting hit so hard on with, with that claim. Absolutely no documentation that those two proline mutations were put in there for anything to do with safety. It's all the literature says. It's, Going back, it was there to for immunogenicity. The, the it, was Im- there for, it was there to improve immunogenicity. Yeah. Okay. So... That that's counterfact checked. Okay. That's false. Um, and then, uh, well, no, the vaccine spike is different from the viral spike, and um, so, with the exception of those two point mutations, that's a true statement. Except that the circulating S one subunit, which is what's in your blood, which is what's measured in this paper that I'm referring to in cell, is identical. And furthermore. Circulating S1 fragment of spike, which has the receptor binding domains, which bind to ACE2, blah, 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 and, and bind to platelets and all that stuff. Okay. Those are identical between the original Wuhan strain and the vaccine. Now, they are not identical. The subsequent evolved. So, for instance, if you were to look at Omicron, the sequence in the Omicron spike is different. Right. Which suggests strongly that the variants have been driven. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No question. I, I, you know, I concur with Gert on that. Yeah. The place that I, I branch off from Gert a little bit is um, he's making a very strong inference. I'm using language that we understand the meaning of. It's a precise language. He's yeah. making a strong inference. So that's related to a hypothesis, but kind of stronger. It implies that there is some... Um, intrinsic bias, frankly, um, in in a particular hypothesis to say it's a strong inference. Um, uh, it can be appropriate bias, but in in Gertz, 
uh, um, warnings about the probability and potential timeline for the evolution of a more pathogenic, more highly infectious variant. Um, he is, he is uh, building that um, inference based on um, a stack of inferences having to do with the selective pressure forces at play here, having to do with um, uh, patterns of glycosylation, which will evolve very readily, um, uh, as well as specific sequences, and the role of antibodies and non-neutralizing antibodies in selecting for these um, altered, as I understand his thinking, these altered patterns of glycosylation. And, in, and he's making a statement that this will occur um, and a specific timeline associated with it. I prefer to say that it is a risk. That it could occur, yeah. Um, and uh, I wouldn't want to uh, stake my reputation on saying it's going to occur two months or eight months from now or whatever the, the number is. And uh, it could very well not manifest. Um, so um, I'm, I find myself, because I'm Gerd is a friend uh, and a scientific colleague who I highly respect. And so people come to me, including Dell, big tree and say, okay, Robert, what can you say about this? And I have to say, um, it is a, a plausibility and I have to, uh, I personally categorize it in the domain of risk identification, um, not, uh, a probabilistic model. Yeah, I, I agree. It may be that Garrett knows something, uh, that he hasn't conveyed apparently to you or to me yet but i do feel like the risks he's describing are very real but i don't know the evolutionary part is i think hard to predict here and anyway it's my I, bias too i'd, I'd be curious it's, it's a multivariate system yeah it's a highly complex multivariate system yeah and uh but i'm totally with him that uh mass vaccination in the face of this enormous amount of uh infectious pressure yeah is uh um we could say madness i think it's it's at the intersection of ignorance and hubris it was wildly reckless um and i i think he was i want to hesitate to say clearly but it feels like he was quite right about the driving of the proliferation of variants that and and so trying to be an objective uh you know how it is in science yeah um uh, we we try to live in this world of multiple working hypotheses and then design experiments or look for natural experiments to allow us to to throw out uh, as many hypotheses as we can, leaving us with the one that we can't throw out yep. as the probable. Um, right. Um, so uh, this uh, um, driving towards evolution of the escape variant that is the Omicron series, let's say, um, has some anomalous findings associated with it that um, get straight to your core competence. Um, as you probably know, when you build the phylogenetic tree structure for the relatedness of these viruses, using the standard software, and I'm choosing those words carefully, yeah. um, and Let's go back, loop back to that in a moment. Using the standard software, it projects that the origin of the Omicron uh, branch 
from that evolutionary tree that we call SARS-CoV-2 uh, um, precedes uh, the evolutionary branch that gave rise to, for instance, Delta, Delta and the prior yeah. variants. Um, so that's a conundrum. Uh, how could that happen? One hypothesis that I'm aware of is that, and this will get to your, again, to your core confidence, I'm playing to your, your expertise, is as you know, um, evolution is not always linear in terms of uh, changes over time. In a given, in a stable ecosystem, in a stable niche, um, you can use uh, um, base alterations as a sort of molecular clock, mm -hmm. right? Sort of. I mean, the, all of these molecular clock things have assumptions in them that are Bingo. rule of thumb at best. Bingo. And those, to the best of my knowledge, those core models that are used are built on the thesis that that rate of molecular evolution in a large viral population is relatively consistent. And yet we know um, with our backgrounds in evolutionary biology that in fact, going back to Darwin's finches, yeah. uh, that what often happens is when a, a organism encounters a new evolutionary niche, yeah. it will undergo an explosive evolution and all yeah. presumptions we have about the rate of evolution go straight out the door. Yep. Um, and, and you have these evolutionary bursts. And that is really one of the big stories of modern evolution, of modern evolutionary biology is the realization that, that you have these interactions between niche availability and evolutionary bursts, and you can't make those assumptions about constant rate of evolution um, and constant rate of molecular change. So um, it is possible that those phylogenetic trees represent a artifact of an underlying assumption in the calculations having to do with the rate of mutation. The, um, uh, the thing that plays to that thesis, the supporting um, data uh, in my mind, is that um, concurrent with the emergence of Omicron, it, with its uh, uh, molecular characteristics, and by the way, we don't characterize the glycosylation pattern, we just characterize the protein sequence, so that's a blind spot we have, uh -huh. um, is that um, Omicron also was noted to have shifted its tissue targeting. Now, if you, if you pick at, with Gert and you dive into this, he has uh, a construction around that that shift had to do with these innate antibodies that are non-blocking, driving... Um, that evolutionary change. But for whatever reason, there was a shift in the tissue trophism from deep lung, which is known in flu and other respiratory viruses to be associated with a more highly pathogenic virus. And you can take an H1N1. This is where, where it was really made clear was H1N1 has a variant that is very deep lung targeting and it has another variant that is not that is more upper airway and oropharyngeal. And the one that is not upper airway is less pathogenic. Um, and so Omicron, concurrent with its emergence and its incredible infectivity, uh, has this shift um, from its tissue trophism to more of a upper airway oropharyngeal, which is why the paradox of it's more infectious and less pathogenic which on, on face, when you look at that, you go, what? That doesn't make any sense at all. 
it had this shift. And so that means if we go back to the evolution yep. and bursting, what something happened that caused it to get a new niche. Yes. Uh, I would also point out, this is one of these places where I feel like um, the, the lack of transparency around what was going on in Wuhan that likely produced this is, uh, is criminal. Okay, that's a, that's a great segue to the third hypothesis. Well, hold on. I just want to put this on the table. The point is, th- this virus ain't normal. Absolutely. It behaves so bizarrely. And the ways that it behaves bizarrely are, at least to some degree, pretty easily mapped onto, hey, we were doing some stuff in the lab and we accidentally selected for a bunch of other stuff along the way because, of course, we were. Or we intentionally selected for it. Well, they no, they intentionally selected for certain things. But if they ran serial passage experiments in ferrets and humanized mice in order to make a virus that was uh, capable of more infectious in humans. What they did was accidentally trained it for uh, the ability to jump species. The the fact that they probably did it in in saying that you're giving the benefit of the doubt, just so we're clear on that. Right. They also, um, if you take, let's say that they used ferrets, which seems likely given that this virus actually does transmit between individual ferrets and individual minks to other ferrets and minks. Um, If you cage minks together and then you allow them to infect each other, the natural rules that a virus would evolve based on don't apply, right? A ferret in the wild that is infected with the virus, the virus has an interest in not wrecking the ferret because the ferret has to be successful enough at doing ferret stuff that it lives to spread the virus. And so take, for example, the loss of sense of smell that seems to come with COVID so frequently. If you remove the sense of taste and smell from a ferret in the wild, it's going to die. Yeah. It's going to starve very quickly because it depends on those things to find food. If you do it in a cage where it's eating ferret chow, right, then it can be falling all over its neighbors, infecting them. And the point is what that does to the virus is it removes the value of being efficient, right? If the virus gets spread best when it infects only those tissues involved in transmitting it and it leaves the ferret otherwise intact, if that's a good virus in the wild, in the lab, it's a very different thing. And so, so my point would be when we're looking at Omicron and Delta and saying it's funny because Omicron isn't the descendant of Delta, we're looking at a virus that is likely, that is more likely than most viruses to have leapt species, could have easily leapt into mice because it probably was already trained in mice and so had some experience there and leapt back. That's not something you would expect normally, but we have to leave that possibility open in this case. And then when you talk about uh, it moving tissues within the body, well, we've trained it to have this extremely broad tropism, whereas nature would have narrowed that tropism. And so we shouldn't be too surprised by that either. So my basic feeling is, look, we know a lot about viral evolution. We've got to be really cautious about applying it to this virus because we did funny things to this virus that nobody has explained to us yet. Fair enough. And, and uh, you just touched on the fourth hypothesis. So the, the third hypothesis with Omicron, I think Omicron is a fascinating case study mm-hmm. um, in its emergence in this context. Um, and, you know, it's almost if you believe in divine providence, it, its occurrence last winter was pretty close to divine providence, if that's how you're wired. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but for those of us that have to 
live in an analytical world of data that we can perceive and analyze, and we're not allowing ourselves to invoke the divine as we try to logic our way through these things. I'm trying to. Yep. Uh, I don't think you're going to try, offend try the creator, to, try, but trying you know. to square the circle here. <laughs> it's not the creator I'm worried about. Yeah. Um, it's <laughs> my followers. Um, uh, so, in any case, um, uh, you mentioned uh, the um, species reservoir and interspecies transfer, which is absolutely one of the hypotheses for emergence of Omicron. Um, particularly since it was detected in Africa. The contrapositive for that is that uh, it, it was first detected. That doesn't mean it didn't um, appear before then. It was first detected in these four diplomats that had a, a travel history that is not disclosed. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, three of them were European and one of them was Asian. Um, uh, so, uh, it, it formally, since we know it infects cats um, and it infects ungulates, ergo white-tailed deer, for example, yep. um, in, in the context of, of Central Africa and Southern Africa, there are plenty of both, uh, and not to mention the field mice and everything else. Uh, so it had a rich uh, um, uh, palette of, yes. of potential alternative hosts. All right. Well, I want to be careful there because there's a, there's an important distinction that people typically miss. This virus jumps to a huge range of species. We've seen that. There are only a few that it jumps successfully within, and it has to do both before this becomes relevant to the story. Now, I think we've seen it in deer. I'm not sure we've seen it in... Felids. We've seen replication between felids. Oh, I don't know that. I think, I think it does um, transmit. We've seen this in zoos. I know it transmits to cats. I didn't know that yeah, it transmitted I'm, I'm between. I'm not sure them. about from from felid to felid. Okay, certainly goes uh, in weasels, ferrets, and minks. We've seen it. Um, I believe mice. Yes. So anyway, we've got a group, and that group is already large enough to tell us something. This Especially is a in the strange... context of Africa. Yes. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Are there any deer Plenty in of Africa? Yeah, there are, but they're uh, they're bovids, not cervids, but. Well, we got the spring buck and the like. Yeah, okay, okay. So, <laughs> they're primarily bovids. But nonetheless, A, we've got a virus that's really good at jumping between species and has successfully jumped uh, once across so, that so, barrier. So, the point, not to get too deep in the weeds, the yeah. point is that it is theoretically possible that this thing could have uh, moved from a human host to an animal host, evolved, there could have been an evolutionary burst in the animal host, and then reinfected a human host, yeah. and been more adapted in terms of its ability to replicate and displace the dominant strains at the time, and it moved through Africa, into South Africa, and then and throughout the world, or us, it's possible that the whole African link is only the, an artifact of having particularly astute virologists in South Africa who happen to make be, to be good at early detection. Yeah. Um, so we can't disambiguate those things. The other one that is the uh, conspiracy spooky version of this, so that third of the four hypotheses um, that I've heard uh, repeatedly from uh, colleagues who have intelligence community ties. Yeah. And, and I think we need to, for the audience, we need to just put a stake in the sand. Um, 
Yes, I have dealt with many people that are in the intelligence community, including the CIA. I've actually been partnered with one in a prior corporation that we'd set up. Um, I've, I've spoken about this in Bobby's book. And one of the things that I know for a fact, um, I've discussed in detail the training that is performed, is that folks that are trained in the intelligence community are trained liars. That's what they are. They are trained to be very adept liars. So anytime I hear anything from somebody that I know is of the intelligence community as a culture, I know that I really can't place any validity on anything I hear. And anything I hear has to be triangulated. So that's the prelude to saying um, what I hear from multiple people which may well just be an intelligence ploy, is that there were multiple viruses engineered in that Wuhan lab by the woman that is known as the Bat Lady, um, who had a prior title, apparently, that specifically acknowledged her leadership as being responsible for bioengineering biologic weapons. Apparently, this was her job title um, in Chinese in some way. Uh, and that there was something in the range of a dozen of these variants that were generated. And the thesis is that the parental Omicron may have been a, may actually have been a predecessor virus, which was part of the developmental program, and that those phylogenetic trees actually are accurate, um, and that it was intentionally or inadvertently uh, released. So that I think that in the landscape of uh, the world that we now live in, as people committed to um, a multiple working hypothesis approach to trying to discern truth in biology, mm -hmm. which I think you and I share, yep. uh, um, and I'm referring to a, a, a science paper first published in the 1800s uh, that's kind of become fundamental to those of us you were mentioning the other day, um, we need to retrain scientists uh, and, and one of those things we need to do is, is make them read that damn paper. Uh, so multiple working hypotheses. I think we have to acknowledge in that spectrum of alternative hypotheses that Omicron may also be synthetic. Yeah, that's, that is a real possibility. And I would just add, you know, and I'm, I know nothing about whether this might have happened, but the dynamics of Omicron open the possibility that some... And by the way, I would think this is incredibly reckless, too, but that some white hat entity released. You went there. You used that term. I was wondering. I was yeah. I was trying not to use that term because it evokes the whole QAnon world. Oh, well, I don't know uh, that it evokes the QAnon yeah. world. But the point is somebody that was sick and tired of seeing the COVID catastrophe unfold could have released. This is effectively a contagious I think it vaccine. Is, I think it's a formal possibility. And it was it was odd. Um, these things that come out of Bill Gates's mouth, uh, sometimes I, you just got to wonder. Um, Why is he so darn predictive when... And, and that uh, after Omicron emerged, um, he gave interviews in which he was advocating for the development. And there was a programmatic initiative launched for development of infectious vaccines. So um, I need to say here that I've done a lot of thinking about infectious vaccines, and I can think of few ideas more dangerous 
Um, because oh, what is totally irresponsible. What is inherent to such? A, I mean, you look. You could create Talk about hubris. Well, a it raises all kinds of questions about informed consent because you're going to. Pick it's, up, it's like informed consent doesn't matter anymore, right? But the worst part is at the point that you've created something, even if it behaves like a beautiful vaccine, even if it gives you sterilizing immunity and it's uh, safe. At the point that you have created a vaccine that jumps from individual to individual, what you've done is invited evolution to take that thing and modify it into something else. And, and, and you and I that live in this, uh, you know, with, with a daily awareness of the insane complexity, not of biology, just biology at the organism level, but biology at the system level yep. of ecosystems, we're acutely aware that if you release an agent like this, um, that already we know, for example, has um, a ready ability to um, migrate between species. Um, there, there. That's why I get back to hubris. the The idea that is being promoted by uh, various players, including apparently the chief science officer of the um, World Economic Forum, that we can apply artificial intelligence and other advanced digital technologies to predicting the behavior of complex biological systems is incredibly naive and arrogant. It's nuts. We are nowhere close. We are nowhere close. And to think that you've got it nailed down invites exactly the kind of disaster that we're facing. And it gets to the culture of um, uh, um, the... Uh, community that will engage in gain of function research. Right, exactly. Now, I guess this is the last thing I, I want to mention that we got to set you free. Um, one of the contentious points surrounding the proliferation of variants, in my mind, I'm constantly running a the best simulation I can for what would have happened if we hadn't deployed these so-called vaccines. That's one question. We'll call them inoculations. Inoculations. Um, if we hadn't deployed them, where would we be now? That's one question. That's a good thought experiment. And the second question, so that question comes in two flavors. If we had deployed the repurposed drugs that seem to be so effective and we hadn't deployed these uh, Which is what I advocated for and what my team was going hell-bent for leather for. Right. And which we got blocked by the FDA at every twist and turn for. Right. And, I, and this is the DOD. My feeling <laughs> is, based on everything I know, I am not certain of this, but I believe um, we would have controlled COVID. We would have done so quickly. Um or in the worst case, herd immunity would have arisen without basically chasing these variants around the map. And um, can I can I put a pin in that just for a moment sure. to acknowledge you? Um, uh, this is another looping back to our prior podcast. Um, you stuck your neck way out, and you said ivermectin could be our solution. And in if we boil that down, let's take away the term or the specific molecule um, and generalize it. And let's imagine that you were saying a repurposed effective drug, which um, uh, mitigated the symptoms and uh, essentially eliminated the mortality, 
but did not completely eliminate viral replication, could have eliminated the threat and resulted in elimination of the virus within the general population. And I challenged you on that. I yeah. said, no, I disagree. I remember Because that. it's not active as an antiviral. Okay. Yep. That's another one where I was wrong. It does have some degree of antiviral activity. I concede that point. And furthermore, um, if this leads right into what you were saying, that's why I wanted to put a pin in it for yeah. a moment, just to acknowledge you, um, you. that um, if we had an agent, whether it's a horse dewormer that's actually a Nobel Prize winning human medicine that's been administered in hundreds of millions of doses uh, with complete safety profile or some other thing, uh, you know, God came out of the clouds and gave it to gave it us this thing and we deployed it and it had those characteristics. Um, I believe that I what I think you're leading up to, I think it is a reasonable thesis that um, the natural process of global virus circulation would have proceeded as a coronavirus does. Um, and we would have generated broad, durable, natural immunity, including a mucosal immune response mm. throughout the population. And we would have been then in a similar situation to other viral outbreaks where the, the, um, Circulation of the virus would have been quenched. It would have gone into hiding in various reservoirs, including animal, and would periodically reemerge as the birth cohort expanded to such a point that it would sustain ongoing viral replication. In other words, R0 would grow greater than one because the birth cohort got larger, yep. and it would circulate in what population? Young children. Okay, do young children have severe disease from COVID? Nope. No. Right. Do they die from COVID? No. Not if they aren't, you know, severely compromised, compromised yeah. on death's door from something else. Um, and, it, and it pushes them over the line. That, so, so that's the normal evolutionary biology of these worldwide pandemics is they circulate. Everybody gets hit. They develop natural immunity. Natural immunity, a highly evolved system, extremely complex, yeah. uh, provides a robust, broad-based immunity in almost all cases. Um, uh, and uh, then the virus would have uh, found its way to occult reservoirs um, and uh, then periodically reemerged to circulate in the world in the uh, young in, in the population. population. Yeah. Um, and then uh, would again go quiet, typically for something like five to seven years, because that's how long it takes to build a big enough cohort. Yeah. And, and then it would crop up again, and we would have these little outbreaks where kids would get cold. So <laughs> here's the thing. In, in checking my model, which I really don't know if it's right or not, but... I think it, it probably is. I think it probably is, it is too. And I'd say, if we're going to live in this world of multiple hypotheses, it is certainly uh, a high on the probability list. It, it's live. <laughs> but here's the thing that I, I I can't shake this. They told us a story about what happened in Japan that made less than no evolutionary sense. Right? Which Remember was? what they told us? The virus crashed and they said, ah, it committed evolutionary suicide. Um, that basically somehow its mutation rate too high, didn't sustain, disappeared from the population. So I missed like, the storyline. Oh, it it didn't make any sense. And so here's the thing. In Japan, something happened. Did they uh, start using ivermectin? No. 
they authorized that you could use ivermectin and then they kind of did some strange japanese right. thing where they kind of weren't bragging about what they were doing but there was a culture in which ivermectin was happening but it wasn't officially sanctioned right they sort of got under the radar they didn't piss anybody off but they used this very effective tool now that and they had actually had some other drugs too that were restricted only available within japan i don't know about those yeah. i would imagine they used hydroxychloroquine but i actually don't know about that either um, but in any case, the point is, if you had the full pharmacopoeia at your disposal and you used that, then you could tell some story about basically creating pressure on, if, especially if it's multiple drugs, right? You could create a pressure where the virus can't solve the evolutionary puzzle and it does collapse because, you know, it's... It, it, you're but, but that is all predicated on the thesis that this is a highly lethal virus, which is what we were told all the way along. And the, down, the data are in. Right. Well, I don't, I don't know that it is. I just think if the data say what we think they do about the amount of virus circulating in Japan and then its surprising disappearance at the point that it was on the rise elsewhere on planet Earth, then the point is there's a missing factor from that story. That missing factor could be repurposed drugs. That could fill in the gap about why the virus failed evolutionarily. What can't is... The virus on its own failed because if you have successful variants and then you have the it's, evolution it's, of less it's like, gibberish, it's gibberish. <laughs> right. And so the point is, okay, I don't know what that gibberish is hiding, but it's hiding something. And it's interesting that repurposed drugs show up in that story at the same moment. Yeah. And so then there's Uttar Pradesh. Exactly. Um, and uh, um, so what I found fascinating because I was tracking Uttar Pradesh closely because like you, I was friends with Pierre Corey. Mm hmm. Um, and so, and I, but unlike Pierre and perhaps unlike you, I don't know, I had connections in India. I don't. Um, uh, with this organization called, uh, Reliance, uh, which is owned by this guy named Ambani, who actually is one of the board members at the World Economic Forum. Um, uh, so I own that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I hadn't been aware of those ties and their significance at the time. So I had these links into India um, and, uh, and I was carefully monitoring it. And there was this growing uh, um, crowd of voices observing that there was a treatment pack um, being made available, widely available, deployed in Uttar Pradesh. And there was a concurrent collapse of uh, morbidity and mortality from the virus. That doesn't mean the virus wasn't replicating, but we weren't seeing it in the hospitals and people weren't dying. Um, and, uh, and it was often ascribed to ivermectin being a component of those packs together with uh, zinc and other, uh, you know, perhaps azithromycin or other things that was rumored. Yeah. And um, then there actually was a meeting between um, the White House and Modi, uh, the president had a meeting with Modi. And I know functionally after immediately after that happened, all communication channels regarding what was in there and what was happening in Uttar Pradesh collapsed. Yep. Um, and so that's correlation. It doesn't prove causation. Um, uh, and then uh, the press there was a series of stories put out 
that asserted that this was a spurious association and they had no causal relationship. Um, and that there was actually no evidence that ivermectin was any of those packages. And I asked colleagues, can you please get me one of those packages or get me a photograph or whatever? And they said, no, that is not possible. We can't do that. It's not amazing. Okay. Yeah, it is amazing. We're talking um, about, we're talking about a province that has a population as big as the U S yeah. And, and some, and that is observing a, uh, apparent resolution to what had been a burgeoning major public health crisis mm -hmm. um, with a precipitous drop-off after some discrete event that occurred. A precipitous drop-off not mirrored in the rest of the country. Right. Um, and uh, so um, this went on. And then I had a friend who actually traveled to the region. And, and as she was traveling to the region, uh, um, uh, I asked her, can you please get me an image? Um, and uh, and this happened, and it was incontrovertible. The word ivermectin <laughs> was right there on the packaging. Okay, and 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 I think this may have been the first image that that provided you know irrefutable proof that ivermectin was in those packages. And it's you know funny how these things happen. Um, uh, and and then that was spread around, but still the official position was no disclosure of what was in those, uh, you know, bubble pack, um, like a Z pack yeah. uh, products that were distributed. Now there are more images of that that have come out and it's generally acknowledged, although the official party line, as you know, continues to be that ivermectin doesn't work and it shouldn't be used and it's toxic <laughs> humans, all of which is right. a lie. All of which is a lie. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, it bears mentioning here that the, you know, the world of, people who aren't paying close attention, of course, leapt at the TOGETHER trial, you know, the supposedly largest. Which was another designed to fail um, uh, clusterfrack. Uh, clusterfrack, I like that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, designed to fail. But I mean, the funny thing is that the story, it looks, it looks to me, having looked at all of these things now, that um, pharma is very good at building trials uh, to fail. Designing them to fail. It's, it's easy. It's well, it's easy, easy unless you're up against a drug like ivermectin, where each of the trials that was designed to fail <laughs> failed to fail. And then they had to fudge the presentation in order to make it look like it had failed, which happened in the get together which, trial. Which is also. A, a general way of saying ivermectin continually exceeded expectations. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's crazy. And, um, you know, in its, I mean, in its annual review, <laughs> exceeds expectations. Exceeds expectations. Yes. It's that annoying student who uh, just slam dunks everything, doesn't need any teaching. All right. Well, Dr. Malone, it is always a pleasure. I am. Uh, I am just so, my heart is warmed watching you fight the good fight continually and bring something to it that no one else can as the inventor of the core technology in those vaccines. You bring an understanding of the way these things work that is um, so deep that um, it's really irreplaceable. And I am... I'm, of course, livid, livid at the slanders that you have endured and the pretense that you are somehow elevating your uh, contribution beyond what it actually was. And I will point people before we close out here. I will say 
I did not know him at the time. He's now a good friend of mine. Um, but Alexandros Marinos checked very oh, thoroughly to see whether you were, in <laughs> fact, the inventor of the uh, mRNA technologies at the heart of these vaccines. And mind you, you had no hand in creating the vaccines, right. nor would you have deployed them. But um, you did. You, you he, were he there. Ran it to and, ground. and you have the receipts. <laughs> so... Um, in any case, uh, the slanderers will continue to slander you, but thank you for standing so, up for so us. So before we close, because yep. I always like to close on a, on a positive, um, uh, and since we're on that thread, um, which is the slander and defamation, mm -hmm. um, as Dell observed yesterday, uh, all press is good press, to paraphrase his... his uh, I don't agree with him on that front, but I, I, he did say it, yeah. Um, when I was deleted from Twitter... Um, and LinkedIn, um, uh, my Getter account started exploding. And then we went on Rogan and uh, my Substack just took off like a shot. Um, every time I get hit um, with one of these fact checks, it's as if they reactivate enthusiasm uh, for my uh, position. So what, what Dell was talking about, I'm experiencing. That doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. And that, for instance, the uh, defamation in the New York Times, in which they went after my wife, um, uh, that that um, that's particularly unpleasant, um, and it is hurtful. Uh, but um, I it I I as I said in this uh, article, um, what does it feel like to be vindicated? Um, it's been entirely unpleasant, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. All right. Well, I um, I quite agree with you on the do it again in a heartbeat thing. Uh, I have, of course, endured quite a bit of slander myself. The one point I would argue isn't quite right is that it may be that by being thrown off of Twitter and uh, slandered in the various places that you reach more people. But the problem is it's very hard to know who you're not reaching because of those things. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, that's the attention is to create a comfortable pathway to, um, uh, allow those who are, who have cognitive dissonance, who have psychological pain in encountering ideas and thoughts um, and data that is caused them psychological discomfort, um, cognitive dissonance. Um, it allows them a pathway that they don't ever have to have that pain. That's the logic, if you look at it, underlying the, the censorship. Well, that, that's part of it though. The, my concern is, and I should probably just say, when I started uh, with the lab leak, looking at these questions and finding myself in a very uncomfortable, quite heterodox position. When I became a dissident, I started looking at all of the places where the lies were blatant, right? Lab leak, repurposed drugs and the treatment of COVID, vaccine safety and effectiveness. And what I realized was if we could successfully reveal the truth on those fronts so that it was generally understood Right. We got there with lab leak. Right. I believe people are waking up to the fact that safe and effective does not describe these so-called vaccines. Ivermectin is the sticky wicket 
for interesting reasons. Hopefully it will eventually come. But when we get there, we will be able to say, aha, now you know how deep the rot is in the system. You've seen university science fail. You've seen all of journalism fail. You've seen government fail. You've seen the international public health apparatus fail. You've seen the tech sector complicit, right? You've seen the entire system is corrupted. At that point, we will understand something about what we have to fix if we are to survive. Now, by driving you away from the mainstream locations, even if more people find you on Getter, to the extent that you have been, in some sense, sidelined from the mainstream conversation, that's a hazard to us ever crossing that threshold. And so I, I would I would advise you and others who feel like, well, it's working out anyway, their thing is backfiring on them, to realize we need you at the core. And because we need you at the core, I would just ask you to be be careful. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'd rather not be assassinated. That's why I have personal security. Yeah. Um, uh, and my wife especially would rather I didn't get assassinated. I, I bet that's um, right. The, but, okay, I can't leave this. i got to keep picking at this. Um, uh, Steve Kirsch, we both know, mm -hmm. um, convened a conference. It took a uh, heavy lift, um, including reminding the provost that he actually has an auditorium at MIT named after him. Uh, but eventually they relented and they allowed this uh, conference to occur on the MIT campus. Um, it was very sparsely attended except by the conference participants, but it was live streamed. Um, it, there was an attempt to get um, voices that were, um, let's say, aligned with the narrative, academics, in addition to uh, members of the Great Barrington Declaration, etc. Um, so we would call those dissidents um, uh, or truth tellers, depending on where you are. Um, point is, um, I listened to the statements very carefully of some of these academics that um, were willing to participate, but continued to be invested in the uh, solutions and explanations that we call the dominant paradigm. Uh, and um, what I heard was some acknowledgement of culpability and a justification for a truth and reconciliation committee akin to what happened in South Africa after the fall of apartheid. Beautiful. Um, and, uh, and I must tell you, I find that completely non-satisfying. <sighs> it is non-satisfying, but go ahead. Well, so the, the, what I did not see, I heard the words of contrition. I did not see the behaviors of contrition. I heard the words of acknowledgement of hubris. I did not observe changes in that hubris. And my fear is that if we go down that path of some sort of a national reconciliation, what underlies that is a push to, to um, normalize and retain the behaviors and structures that have enabled this and they will just be recapitulated again. And I fear that without that, um, uh, if, if we, as we did with torture, if we fail uh, to prosecute, um, then 
uh, this, this will become normalized behavior within our culture. And I think it already has. And, um, and in terms of my role, um, I appreciate and I'm flattered by your compliments and your perception. Uh, um, but uh, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm just so grateful for the warm embraces that I receive every day including from the airline pilots when I travel. <laughs> um, but uh, I really don't think I'm that important. I think that what we're dealing with is way, way, way bigger than the nuance of my uh, knowing where the bodies are buried in the story of the mRNA vaccines. Well, I, I disagree with you. I think your importance is tremendous. And maybe I didn't sum it up correctly, but I think because of what you understand, you can speak with confidence to things in the story that many of the rest of us who might suspect those things can't. And okay. I know that it's having that effect because I also am able to listen to what is said about you when you're not there. So I, I have some sense of what role you're playing in a way that you, you just can't. Yeah. Um, so you are vitally important. Well, thank you. Um, and you're- My wife will be very grateful to hear that. Uh, I don't think I don't think she'll be surprised, to be honest with you. Um, with respect to the truth and reconciliation thing, though, I'm, I'm going to withhold judgment because I hear you loud and clear. If the idea is this is how the thing escapes to recapitulate itself and pull this again on us, that can't be. On the other hand, if it recognizing if the individuals involved in this recognize that if they actually were held accountable for what they actually did, right, that they would be in for um, a serious Nuremberg-like reckoning, then they you might, are they in might much twice. Well, they might consider all kinds of things in order to avoid getting there. And so I don't like truth and reconciliation basically because I do feel like culpability requires... These people have to be punished in order. There has to be some accountability. There has to be accountability. On the other hand, if if the question is, are we ever going to get to talk about what captured all of those systems and allowed this to happen? What allowed them to gaslight us like this? What allowed them to gaslight the people that they coerced into being vaccinated and who then suffered? And which they are continuing to do. Continuing to do. If the only way to get to the phase where we say, well, now let's just look at what happened and make sure it doesn't happen again. If the only way there is truth and reconciliation, then I am on board because the future of humanity depends on us getting our captured system replaced and uncaptured. So on that note, uh, which is a positive, um, it's a hopeful forward looking. It's, I hope that we don't have such a long time between now and the next time we chat. Let's make sure that we don't. All right, Robert Malone, it has been a pleasure, and uh, I, I hope to see you again soon. Likewise.